John Mark is from Portland. And uh, Portland is a really interesting place in the United States that uh, it's in the Pacific Northwest um, above San Francisco. And it's part of a region called, they call themselves Cascadia, which almost or has an independence movement where with part of Canada, Vancouver, British Columbia, they want to break away from the rest of uh, the United States, which I think has gotten even more powerful, that, that movement uh, in the last little bit. But Portland is, um, has church attendance levels very similar to Europe. Uh, it's a very unchurched place, and probably even a little bit different to Europe and Australia, where you have places which have just fallen into unchurchedness. Uh, Portland is a place which people move to in many ways to define themselves against what they see as, you know, a, a Christian compromised culture in other parts of the country. So it's a, it's a, it's it's. I find it when I speak to people there, it's a place where like you talk to people in Australia, it's like, oh, church. Do people still go to that or? I remember that, where there's almost an understanding of like, we don't want to be like those people. Um, so there's, there's a really uh, progressive city, very left-leaning city, and a really fascinating place uh, to do ministry and mission. Um, so I've known John Mark uh, for a few years now and become really good friends and not just enjoy friendship, but enjoy the way that I get to see Jesus lived out in his ministry. Uh, he's had a story where he's come from a ministry paradigm which really left him, I guess, looking for that search that I talked about. Um, and then in the midst of a ministry journey, finding Jesus and going deeper on that search where Jesus isn't just something haunting, he's actually something present. So I'm really excited to introduce uh, uh, him to you and we're going to have a fantastic time. So without any further ado, invite John Mark forward and to Thanks, share with Mark. us. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Uh, people keep asking me, what do you think? And I'm like, what would you think I would think? It's Melbourne. It's amazing. Absolutely loving being here. Uh, Mark made my city just sound like Satan's hometown. And, it, <laughs> it, and he does live there, but so does Jesus. So uh, it's actually a great city. And, you know, we have this Melbourne-Portland coffee rivalry thing where there's all this competition for which city has the best coffee in the world. And uh, I'm not going to weigh in yet, but I did have... I did have Proud Mary this morning, and it was phenomenal. I'm not going to lie. It's really good. So loving your coffee, loving your city, more than anything, just loving you guys and what the Spirit is stirring, and there is so much similarity. You all sound cooler. I can't really understand what you're saying most of the time, but um, because you slur your speech, but you sound really cool. But other than that, there's a lot of um, similarity between my city and yours, the culture that I come from and you as well, and it's just really a, a joy to be with you guys and to chat with you about following Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 6. And uh, this is a little bit more lecture than uh, Bible teaching, but we will do at the beginning a little bit of Bible first off in Luke chapter 6. Just by way of backstory, so um, as Mark said, I live right in kind of downtown, right up in a neighborhood right next to downtown Portland. And in the center of the city, if you've ever been there, Mark has, there is this landmark called Powell's Bookstore. It's the largest independent bookstore in the world. So the main part, and there's more than one, is an entire city block and it's five or six stories tall, all like fully independent. And it's this beautiful, essentially what Mecca is to, you know, Islam, what Coruscant is to Star Wars, like <laughs> Powell's is to literature. It's a temple to the god of literature. And so I'm an avid reader, and I love it, and it's just a few blocks from my office, so about once a week, I meander on down and walk through and get a book for Sabbath or the week ahead, and I've just been struck, because I do this every single week, 
I've been struck over the last five or ten years by the explosion in self-help literature, um, like more now than ever before. Like you can't walk into a Powell's or I don't know what a chain would be here. You don't have Barnes & Noble or anything, right? Whatever you have here. Or go onto Amazon or iTunes or whatever without example after example of some kind of self-help literature. So I was just in a few days ago and right there in the front, you know, wall of like new bestsellers is this little book, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life. And I just thought nothing says white privilege like a title like Designing Your Life. Um, and then the next bestseller after that was The Universe Has Your Back, Transforming Faith. And I thought it's so nice to know that the universe has my back. I, I was not aware of that. I feel so moved by that. You know, Super Better, The Power of Living Gamefully, which is like a new little thing, like turn everything into a game. I think for all of the talk about secularization, we're actually more religious than ever before. But instead of a church, it looks like in my city, a yoga studio. I'm not sure if that's a thing here. It is a thing where I'm from. Instead of worship, it looks like Super Soul Sundays with Oprah. Instead of a teaching, it looks like a podcast or a TED Talk or Aspen Ideas. Instead of a pastor, it looks like a therapist. Instead of a small group, it looks like a reading club or a gym membership or a you cycle with people from work. Instead of a Bible study, it looks like a book club. Instead of a retreat, it looks like a motivational seminar. And instead of silence and solitude, it looks like mindfulness or a really good cup of coffee or hiking on your day off. For all of our talk about secularization, which is all right and true, I think that religion is alive and well. And I think that there's lots of reasons for that. One is, I think, because in a society like ours, whether you're in Australia or Portland, that no longer believes in original sin, because of that, we have to blame shift all of the problems and issues in the world onto, A, somebody else, because we can't own it ourselves, and onto something external. So in my country, you know, if you're a Republican, it's the Democratic Party, or if you're a Democrat, it's the Republican Party, or you know, around the world, it's Islam, or it's Christianity, or it's the public school system, or it's the lack of, or it's this, or it's, or it's capitalism, or it's communism. It's this kind of vague, ambiguous, external reality that is with something else. But still, I think deep down, if we're brutally honest, we know that the problem is much closer to home. The problem is not external, it's internal. And it's not necessarily somebody else. There's at least a bit and piece of the problem inside of us. Something is wrong with us. So we, have, we live in this weird tension where, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think we have this awareness that we are made in the image of God. So there is something good and beautiful and true in every single human being, wherever they stand in relation to Jesus. Yet at the same time, like we all know, that image is cracked. It's bent out of shape. Something has gone wrong. Like, I love all the graffiti in your city. It's kind of like, it's like a beautiful painting with graffiti all over the top. Although graffiti here is kind of cool, so I guess that doesn't really work. Where I'm from, graffiti is not so cool. Do you even call it graffiti? Yeah? Street art, whatever. Is there some Australian name for it that I don't know or something? But we have that sense of, like, image of God, but yet that image is warped and bent out of shape. We all have this idea, that I think because of that, there is in every human being, and we suppress it and we numb it and we explain it away, but latent in every human being is a desire to change, or if you prefer to grow or to mature, or in my city, people talk about you know, evolution or talk about enlightenment. There's this idea that there's a gap between who I am and who I want to be. And once again, this is just human. We're not even talking follower of Jesus yet or not. 
There's a gap between who I am now in the present and who I want to be later in the future. And the beauty of following Jesus is that is a key part. It's not the only thing, but that is a key thing that following Jesus, or I prefer the language of apprenticeship to Jesus, is all about. So have a look at this from Luke chapter 11. This is just a little teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. It's very short. And he has this to say, chapter 6, verse 39. He also told them this parable, kind of a little story with a lot going on under the surface. Can the blind lead the blind? That's a rhetorical question, and the answer is... The answer is another cup of coffee? What's the answer? No, absolutely not. Will they not both fall into the pit? What's the answer there? Yes. And then he has this one line here. The student is not above the teacher. Now, that word student is mathetes in Greek. It's the word that is usually translated disciple. Um, I think, honestly, the best word that we have to capture the idea behind mathetes' apprentice, and a number of scholars have said that as well. Because don't think student in the sense of, I go to university, I have a class Monday, Wednesday, Friday for 50 minutes, and I take notes and then have a test at the end. And disciple is this kind of Christianized word that means different things to different people. And an apprentice, it's, it's like an apprentice. It's somebody that would live an entire life following a rabbi around, not just to get the download on how to interpret the Torah or the Bible of the day, but actually your end goal was to become like your rabbi, that you would literally walk next to him, eat next to him, sleep next to him, you would dress like him, you would copy his tone of voice. It sounds weird in our hyper-individualistic society, but your end goal was to become the mirror image of your rabbi. That's what apprenticeship to a rabbi was all about. So this is the word here, student or disciple or apprentice, is not above the teacher, and, and the word there is rabboni, it's rabbi. Like the, so this is a teaching about the relationship between an apprentice and a rabbi, which wasn't just Jesus and the Twelve. This was a very common thing in his world. It was the pinnacle, the Jewish educational system, kind of like our PhD or master's program. It was like the high, if you made it to that level, if you were the best of the best, you became an apprentice to a rabbi and spent a few years in the north of Israel. The apprentice is not above the teacher. And then look at the second half of that line. But everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. All I want you to see, very simple, is that for Jesus, one of the main points of apprenticeship under him is to become like him, for you as his apprentice to become like your rabbi. Now, for the vast majority of us, hint all of us, that means we need to change. Because, at least in my case, there's a little bit of gap between John Mark Comer and Jesus of Nazareth. There's just, there's just a little bit of room there. There's a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of a journey that I have to go. Odds are for you, there's a much larger gap. But I'm a pastor, so <laughs> it's, it's a small little gap. But there is, I have to admit, there are times when, like, I, you know, lose my temper once in a while. That's about as bad as it gets. But there's a little bit of a gap. And, and when I say change, we need to change, um, I honestly, I don't mean, like, a little self-help tip or technique. Most of us need a radically over, radical overhaul of our entire person from the inside out to become more like Jesus. On that note, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a well-known line um, from the writer Paul in the New Testament. He's essentially the first kind of theologian in the wake of Jesus who's just working out the implications of all that Jesus has to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is actually a complex and in-depth kind of teaching, but I just want to parachute in and read to you from the tail end of it. Chapter 3, take a look at verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces, so this language of just life in the Spirit, open access to the power and presence and person of God, like this kind of wedding image, unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. Look at this. Are being transformed, not were or will be, but are being, present tense, not past, not future, being transformed into what? His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, this word is the word that's used all through the New Testament for what happens when you follow Jesus over a long period of time, and it's this word transformation. This is one example. There are quite a few. The Greek word there is metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphos, which is the word for when a caterpillar is changed into a butterfly. I love this little definition from Webster of um, metamorphos. A profound change in form from one stage to the next in the life history of an organism, as from the caterpillar to the pupa, and from the pupa to the adult butterfly. So, like, that's just very simple to start off our day. That's the end goal, is like full-on transformation of your life from inside out to become more like Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the question I want to ask is, is this level of change actually possible? And before you jump in, they're like, yeah, you like, you know the right answer. That's a leading question. Like, just, if I wasn't here and there was no crowd and it was you alone in a park or whatever, and you were to ask yourself, is that kind of change, I mean, full-on, radical overhaul, inside out, with my, is that actually possible? In my, I've been around the church for, some of you, you're brand new to Jesus. Some of you grew up in the church, you know? Those of you that have been around the church for a very long time, think about your felt experience of church, following Jesus, life. Do you actually believe that level of change is possible? And if so, how? So let me just give you a little bit of autobiography because you don't know me that well and uh, just to like set all of this in context. So I grew up in the church, come from a really great family, but I had a wall in my apprenticeship to Jesus about four or five years ago where I had planted a church in my mid-twenties and it grew really fast. I was on a team, that, and it grew really fast. By about 30, I'm the lead pastor of this kind of multi-site megachurch thing. From the outside, if you were to look in at my life, I don't know what you would think, but most people would think, wow, there's somebody who's doing really well. But I actually was at a breaking point, and the fact was there were some deep places in my life where my apprenticeship to Jesus had yet to touch. So um, kind of behind the facade of, you know, whatever, pastor, there, I, I was racked by anxiety. Um, I could not sleep at night. I was just on edge a lot. I was racked by depression. I was not a happy, joyful, loving person. I was driven type A. I'm a recovering perfectionist at the time. Like the recovery had yet to start. I was just all perfectionist. Sarah down here is nodding, right? Um, we're both in, hopefully you're in therapy. I, I am, yes. Um, and so, I, like, there were just, I was so unwell. I was emotionally unhealthy at home, um, behind the scenes. There was no, like, gross sin. There was no, no, you know, porn addiction. I was not stealing money from the church and on a fair number four. None of that. I was just kind of a jerk and unpleasant to be around. My theology was really good, and I was faithful to my wife. Oh, man, you did not want to be my wife, let me tell you that. Um, you almost didn't want me to be faithful to you. You're like, would you please go away? Um, I was just really grouchy, on edge, critical, condescending, 
And I had been following Jesus my whole life. I was leading a church. The church was doing well. Hundreds, if not thousands of people were coming to faith in Jesus. People were talking about it. I was writing books about like, and it hit me. Oh my gosh, I'm becoming somebody and I don't like who I'm becoming. And I can actually be a success by at least a certain kind of number of metrics. And that's an American thing, especially but actually in real life, behind the scenes, be a failure. Um, failure as a husband, failure as a father, failure as a human being, failure in the end as an apprentice of Jesus. And, and here's, here's why I say that. I remember I was not in this like open rebellion against God at, at all. I was racked during this time. And I remember saying to my wife at one point, I feel stuck. I feel like I grew up in the church and through my teenage years and early 20s, I felt like I was like, I would grow and I would mature. But then I just felt like I hit this plateau. I felt like I, I got to this certain level where I'd, like, I was doing better and I'd got a lot of junk out of my life. But then I just felt stuck. And I felt like, man, I don't feel like I'm more like Jesus than I was a year or two ago. I don't feel like I'm more aware of in contact with the Holy Spirit than I was a year or two ago, and I've been following Jesus, and I feel stuck. And, and this was the thing for me. It, the problem was not that I did not want to change or that I wasn't trying to change. I did want to change really bad. I was not happy with, I'm a perfectionist, remember? I want to be perfect. I really wanted to change. And it wasn't that I wasn't trying to change, that I was lazy or apathetic or just on Netflix all the time. I was on Netflix all the time, but that's a other sermon. Um, but I, I, I was trying to change really hard. The problem was I did not know how to change. Now, around the same time, I started to actually grow. I had my little crisis of faith, um, not so much around theology as around ecclesiology. I started to grow really disillusioned and really discouraged as a pastor because I started to like look around and realize, oh my gosh, there's other people like me in the church. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Um, you know that little saying, as the leaders go, so goes the church. I realized my church is full of people, some of which have been following Jesus for longer than I've been alive, others of which were baptized five years ago and like had a great little run for a few years and then kind of the same thing. Everybody's dealing with the same issue. We hit a plateau and all these people feel stuck and they're better than they were when they started and more moral and they vote a little bit better or whatever, but, but transformed, uh, like it, it transformed at a heart, like radical overhaul of the heart level out. That, that's not the middle of the bell curve in my church. Um, and, and, and I started to realize, oh my gosh, it's the exact same thing. It's not that people don't want to change. They do want to change. And it's not that people aren't trying to change. Most of them are trying really hard and tired from it and worn out. It's that they, like me, don't actually know how to change. So, kind of long story short, I, um, I, I made a number of changes in my life. It was like my kind of come to Jesus moment, as we say in the U.S. And I uh, demoted myself. We had this multi-site megachurch. Uh, demoting yourself, by the way, turns out to be just great. I highly recommend it. And uh, asked, can I just take this one kind of mid-sized church? And I, we moved house uh, to where I could just live within walking distance. And I made all these changes to my life and went on a sabbatical and started therapy and went through emotionally healthy spirituality and started to slow down and simplify my life. And there was this whole, like, you know, kind of real turning point in my life. And it was life-changing and, and still is. And I'm, you know, three or four years now on the other side of it. Just life-changing, like one of those before and after moments that we all have a few of those in life. There was like before that experience 
and after that experience. It was very much like that for me. And since then, I've spent the last about three years just asking this question, how do we change? How do I, for my own sake, and for the church that I lead? And um, I've spent the last few years basically reading and researching everything I can get my hands on around spiritual formation and psychology and spirituality and behavioral economics. I've read all the most random, weird, freaky things. And I've, I've come to learn a lot. So basically what I want to do today is just download the Cliff Notes version of a lot of the best things that I've come across, uh, not only in an abstract theory kind of level in the brain, but even in life stuff. And um, for you to sift through and sort through, and as we say in America, chew the meat, spit out the bones. I don't know if you say that here. I eat a plant-based diet, so I don't like that saying. But you don't say that here either, so there we go. Don't invite me back, ever. <laughs> but um, sift through, pull out the good, toss the bad, and hopefully you find it helpful in your journey to become more like Jesus, all right? Um, to get started, here's just one key idea to frame our time. The insider lingo, if you read the literature, for how we change is spiritual formation. You may or may not be familiar with that language. Don't feel bad if you're not. Here's a working definition of spiritual formation from the writer Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher that really has shaped the way I follow Jesus. He writes this, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus, and then that's not the end, notice the end, as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. So there's similarity to kind of the therapeutic culture that we're in, and that it is about change. It is about how you grow and how you mature. Um, it is about your behavior. So often, I don't know if this is an American thing only, but I regularly hear people say, you know, the gospel isn't about behavior modification. I always like mixed feelings about that little line. I think, what gospel are you reading? I, when I read the gospel of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, he says a lot about behavior. I'm teaching through the Sermon on the Mount right now. It's basically all about behavior. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus wants to modify my behavior. And I think he actually wants to modify it a lot, as in radically overhaul it from the inside out and reteach me a whole new way to be human. I think that what's right about that is for Jesus, it's not just about external behavior. Think of the Pharisee in Jesus' story. It's also about internal. It's about the heart posture. But even deeper than external, internal, it's about a behavior modification or a transformation that comes out of an ongoing relationship with Jesus, um, where the easy yoke, in Willard's language, of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher or our rabbi. So it's about an ongoing, day-to-day, moment-by-moment, living, active relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, out of which we are transformed from the inside, heart first, and then to the outside, our behavior. That's what spiritual formation is all about. But here's a key idea that you need to get, and you notice that in the first line of his definition. Spiritual formation is not a Christian thing, it is a human thing. This is very important for you to wrap your head around. Um, To be human is to be dynamic, not static, meaning we are all being formed, we're all being shaped. The question isn't, are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple of? It's not, are you being formed? It's who or what are you being formed into? What are you being shaped into? On that note, um, I have two paradigms that I want to walk you through today that are essentially my summary and synthesis of everything I've come across in the New Testament as well in psychology. I don't have time to like for each point to take you to a place in the Bible and exegete through. That would take, I did this with my church and it was 10 weeks long. So don't have time for that today. So just trust me, this is coming out of the Bible. 
The first one that we'll work on, and then we'll take a break after this, is what I call unintentional spiritual formation. What I mean by unintentional is you don't have to do anything. This is happening to you right now as we speak. We're all being formed, we're being shaped, first off by the stories that we believe. So, um, you know, human beings, we all have stories or narratives that we live by, right? Does that make sense to you? Life is complex, and it's ambiguous, and it's weird, and it's piecemeal, and now we have access to globalism and the internet. And so you have to, like, come up with some kind of a story, some kind of a, if you prefer the language of a worldview, some kind of a way to make sense of reality. Babette Buster, that famous screenwriter from Hollywood, calls human beings narrative animals. Meaning more than anything, we are shaped, we are formed by the story that we believe in our head about what does it mean to be human, what is true, what is false, what is good, what is evil, what is the good life, what is not the good life. That story is the defining, at least the beginning point of who you do or do not become. A great example is sexuality. Sexuality and all the debate and all the controversy in Australia and America is not, a, it's not actually about morality, it's actually about story. It's about your anthropology. What does it mean to be human? So think about the secular, what's, the secularism tells you this story about your sexuality. You are essentially an animal of time and chance on your side. To be human is to be a glorious accident. There's no creator in creation. There's no design or intentionality other than just, you know, what it took to survive on the plains of Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago. Gender is a social construct. Marriage is a social construct from the Byzantine era that was just about commerce and male domination. If it's your thing, great, but it's not necessary. When sex is just the coupling of two bodies for sexual release, it's in the animal kingdom. Monogamy, that's not natural. Look out, are the kangaroos? Maybe they are, there's a few that are, but I'm guessing no. Like, you know what I mean? And, and there is no meaning or purpose in life. One day, like, you get to the end and you're dead. Um, so just, like, the highest virtue, and the virtue isn't even a thing, that's a social construct, but the highest virtue is essentially happiness. Just, that's all you're left with, is feel good. Life is short, so in the meantime, just do whatever makes you happy, which we define as whatever feels good in the moment. Um, so just give in to what the New Testament would call your flesh, that thing that you're supposed to crucify. No, give in to that, because all you have is now, live and let live, Carpe diem, seize the day, just be true to yourself, do what feels right. There is no like actual morals, just do what feels right as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And, and what's the big deal? It's just play for grown-ups. Now, that's a story. It comes off as this is, an, this is you know, data, this is science. It's an interpretation of data. It's an interpretation of science. That is a story. The question is, is that the real true story of the world and of your sexuality? Does that story make the best sense of the human condition? Does it make the best sense of your own sexuality? Like, it's a story. Is that the right one? Is it good and is it beautiful and true? Now, compare and contrast that with the story of the Bible. You are a human being. You're not an animal. You're actually made to rule over the animal kingdom. There's similarity, but there's a lot of difference. You are made in the image of God. Your maleness and your femaleness, yeah, there's social construct around that, but there's something in there that is good. You, you, are, you are gender. There's a polarity to humanity, male and female, he created them, that is actually good and beautiful and true. 
Um, sex is not just play for grown-ups. When a man and a woman come together and make love to each other, there, something happens. Two people become echad in the language of, of Genesis chapter 2, become one flesh. Two separate autonomous human beings become one entity, and that action is irreversible and irrevocable, and the only relational container that is strong enough to handle that kind of nuclear power of a good and beautiful thing is marriage, a lifelong covenant, not a contract. I will be with you no matter whether you look like you look now or you don't, or whether you are healthy, whether you're sick, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, I am with you, I am for you through all of it. That's the only relationship that even stands a chance to handle the level of beauty and power that is sexual. That's the story that the Bible tells. That's a very different story, would you agree? And which story you believe is going to shape how you enjoy and express your sexuality. Does that make sense to you? That's one example. We could talk about a story around money. That's materialism as a story. A story around power. We could talk about story after story. My point is we're shaped. We are formed by the stories we believe. Secondly, we're shaped by our habits. So all sorts of work has been done over the last few de decades in the field of psychology. Of course, that most famous book is The Power of Habit by Duhigg, if you've read that, to point out exactly that, the power of habit. This is one area where, oddly enough, and this doesn't happen very often, theology, philosophy, and psychology all agree. <laughs> that, that's, that's a bit of a miracle. But they all agree. And it's that we are little more than the cumulative effect of our daily and weekly habits. What we do on a regular basis, we become. Put another way, the things that we do do something to us. And you've got to think about this because most people are, myself included for many years, very blind, very oblivious to this. Um, because your habits, or if you prefer, your practices in the language of church discipline, the spiritual disciplines, your habits get at the core of your being and they shape your loves and your longings. The best analogy I can think of that hopefully will play here is coffee. So... Um, uh, like how many, like very few children like coffee. One of my three kids, Moses, does. And I'm not actually sure if he actually likes it or he just likes the fact that it's like the taboo of coffee or whatever, you know? But very few kids grow up and like coffee from the get-go. I remember my, the first time I had a cup of coffee, I thought it was disgusting. Um, but now I have coffee every single day. I spend a stupid amount of my like, meager budget on high-end artisan, or, you know, origin, like all of that coffee. And like how did I come to love coffee. And, and by the way, I'm type A, I'm high strung, I'm perfectionistic. Coffee is terrible for me. So I, I've read study after study. When you read like some study about how coffee is good for your heart, it's rubbish. It is just some biased scientist trying to justify his addiction. That's all <laughs> it is. Like I went off coffee for six months about two years ago and part of this whole like transformation of the image of Jesus journey I've been on. I thought I need to set down coffee for a while. And for six months I slept better at night. I needed less sleep. I woke up without my alarm clock. I had no lull in the afternoon, more focused, higher mental energy and attention, more comfortable in my own skin. After six months, I just said, it's not worth it. It's just, <laughs> it's just not worth it. It is too high of a price to pay. And I went back on coffee. And, and, and it's not, my point is, I did not like weigh the pros and cons in my mind, read this scholarly article, this scientific thing, and come to the decision, oh, I will drink coffee. No, I know it's bad for me. I know that by one metric system, I would be better off without it. But the problem is, I love coffee. How did I come to love coffee? Through the daily act of drinking it. I got a job when I was 17 at this coffee shop called Coffee People. It was kind of the beginning of third wave coffee in Portland. 
and uh, it's not around anymore, but it was like really cool back in the late 90s. I got this job, and I actually hated coffee. It was just kind of a cool place to work, and so I would just put lots of dairy and chocolate and sugar into it until you couldn't really taste the coffee anymore, and then I would drink that. And eventually you went from the like, you know, double mocha with caramel and whipped cream to like, all right, just a, a vanilla latte and then a latte, and then I got, and now it's like, oh, single origin, Chemex, drip, you know, like it's all that. Right now it's just pure. Like if you put dairy in your coffee, you're like, what is wrong with you? You have to be the purest, you know? So my point is, through the daily act of drinking a cup of coffee, my heart was changed, and I became the kind of person who loves and longs for coffee on a regular basis, even though in my head I know it's terrible for me. Does that make sense? And that's an easy, simple example, but we could talk about all sorts of examples where our habits shape our loves and our longings. Often, the more you do something, the more you want to do something. The more you watch Netflix, the more you want to watch Netflix. The more you uh, eat sugar. Does this happen to anybody? The more you want to eat sugar. Like normally I just let myself have dessert once a week on my Sabbath. But on vacation, it's like open season, right? So I just got back from vacation. It was three weeks long. I gained 17 pounds. And that's not an exaggeration. Yep. And we had dessert every single night. And I get back, and now every night I'm craving dessert. I just think, like, because now my body is like, okay, what's for dessert? Like, nothing. But, like, the more, <laughs> the more you eat sugar, the more you want to eat sugar, the more you read your Bible, the more you want to read your Bible, the more you pray, the more you want to pray, the more you lust, the more you want to lust, the more you look at porn, the more you want to look at porn, the more you exercise, often, the more you, it's like this weird thing. Our habits shape our loves and our longings. Again, this is bad news for coffee and Netflix, but it's great news for following Jesus. It means that actually you have a say in your heart. We'll talk more about this this afternoon. You actually have a say in your loves and your longings, um, and your, your say is through your choice of habits. More on that in um, a few hours. Third, so we're shaped first by the stories we believe, we're formed, we're formed by our habits. Third, we're formed by our relationships. This is like basic math. You become like the people you hang out with. Um, in the language of Proverbs, bad company corrupts, or that's the language of Corinthians, bad company corrupts good morals. And then on the positive side, in Proverbs, you have he who walks with the wise becomes wise. And the reality is you have a circle of friends, you have a family of origin, which is the greatest example of this. Outside of Jesus, the odds are that the greatest shaping and forming um, influence on your life is the home that you grew up in, which is terrifying for some people and really healthy for others. But your family of origin, more than anything, is a marker of who you will or will not become. But it's not just your family, it's your circle of friends, it's your coworker, it's the little tribe of culture that you identify with. The odds are that the like attract likes. And so we meet somebody, I like Mark Sayers, now he's different than I am, that he's much smarter and all of that, but I meet him like, oh, look at you, you're wearing jeans and like kind of close to the same age and we read some of the same things, we both like coffee and we live in the city and we both lead church. I'm like, you remind me so much of me, I like you a lot, <laughs> you know? The reality is I'm so in love with myself that when I meet somebody else who's like me, I'm like, you're a great person, we should hang out more, Right? Like attracts like, and that's why if you have your little circle of friends, most of us, we all kind of dress alike, and we all listen to some of the same music, and we read some of the same literature, and the odds are we vote for the same, or I'm Anabaptist, we don't vote for the, whatever, you know, like, we, the, the odds are that you become like the people that you spend time with on a regular basis, for better or for worse, that just is a fact. And then fourth, all of this happens in an environment. 
And we often don't realize, and Sarah said this so well yesterday, that more than anything, we are shaped by our environment, by the kind of spirit of the age, by the city that we live in. My city, and I'm guessing Melbourne is the same, is a formation machine. My city has a very specific idea of who it does and does not want me to become. It ha- there's a party line of like, this is how you vote, this is how you think, this is how you drive, this is the kind of car you drive, this is how you live, this is what you spend your money on. Like, there is an image of a Portlander, and there is all this, like sentient or not, there is all of this pull and all of this pressure to fit into that image. We become shaped by our city. Again, there's good and there's bad. There's great things in a city like Melbourne or Portland that we, I think, as followers of Jesus, even are to say yes to. And then there are other things that are not great at all. And then because it's 2017, we all live two places at once. So we all live in Melbourne, or in my case in Portland, or wherever you're from, and we all live on our phone. Um, because of the internet, because of the smartphone, we now have infinity in our back pocket. That's why everywhere you go, just this morning we were at Proud Mary for coffee, and I think it was Alex who's with me from Bridgetown, um, I think it was Alex, somebody turned to me and said, man, like you could just be in Portland right now because hipsters look exactly the same everywhere you go. They're all wearing the same jeans. They all like have that like, I'm an individual. <laughs> was it you who said that right? Like they all are so individualist, but they all look exactly the same. So, you know, um, there's that whole like, there's just, there's a thing. You dress the same, you think the same, you talk the same, you're into craft coffee. Like as the world is getting bigger, it's also getting smaller. Now, the stories that we believe the habits that we live into on a day-to-day basis, the relationships that we're in, and of course, above anything, our environment, um, all conspire and collaborate together to shape us. Now, this happens over time. This doesn't happen. That's why it's so, this is why this is so fascinating and at times a little bit dangerous, if not even lethal, because we don't realize it. Often it's like you move at such an incremental, such an inch by inch by inch pace that all of a sudden you don't realize until a year, two, three goes by and all of a sudden you wake up and you realize, whoa, I used to be there and now I'm here. And sometimes that's really good. Here is a good place. Other times here is not a good place at all. Because this whole thing, it is just, it's, it doesn't speed up to the rate of our culture. It's slow, it's incremental, it's gradual. At times you feel like you're not even doing anything or going anywhere, but it happens over time, and it happens through experiences, and that's why we're all so very different. You um, get married at a young age, you don't get married at a young age, you go through a divorce, you don't go through a divorce, you start a business, it's a raging success, or you go through unemployment, you have, get diagnosed with a disease, or you're healthy, you are an extrovert, you're an introvert. All of us, experience after experience after experience, good ones and bad ones, were shaped by the things that not only happen around us, but that actually happen to us, again, at times for better or for worse. And all of this together, the stories we believe, our habits, our relationships, our environments, our time, our experiences, my point is very simple. All of this forms you, all of this shapes you, and here's the terrifying thing, all you have to do is wake up in the morning. You don't have to do anything. Just get out of bed, whatever your morning routine is, hopefully you read your Bible and pray and drink really expensive coffee, that's my it's my thing. Um, or maybe you check your email, or you read the news, or you go to the gym, or you catch the train into down. Whatever your thing is, all you have to do is just wake up. Conscious, subconscious, intentional, unintentional, the way of Jesus, not at all the way. It's just you are being formed, you are being shaped into a very specific kind of person. So we're going to take a break in just a minute, and then we'll come, tack, come back and we'll talk about the flip side 
intentional spiritual formation? Um, how do we actually grow and mature and become more like Jesus of Nazareth? But before we do that, I just think there's a, a really good question that you need to sit in this morning, that I need to sit in, and it's just very simple. Um, who are you becoming? Because there, there's a movement, there's an inertia, there's a, a weight of gravitational pull and push on your life. You're becoming somebody. Who are you becoming? If you plot the trajectory of your character arc out a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades if you're young, who do you see out there on the horizon? Do you see yourself becoming Jesus but expressed through your personality, introvert, extrovert, laid back, type A, your gender, male, female, your stage of life, young mom, single, whatever. Do you see yourself becoming Jesus expressed through you? Or do you see yourself becoming somebody else? The first time I did this was actually like I was 30 years old. And I did not like, I did not like it. There was a trajectory. I had enough, just enough time under my belt where I could actually do this. And it was terrifying. And I realized, oh wow, I can actually become a success by the Western metric system and fail at life in the things that really matter. I have come to believe, I believe a ton in what you do. I reject the dichotomy of it's like, it's who you are that matters, not what you do. We're a human being, not a human doing. I absolutely reject that. I think that is like, Genesis 1 is fully at odds with that. I don't think that's even true. But what I think is right about that is I do think the most important thing that you get out of your life, that Jesus gets out of your life, is the person that you become. At the end, that, that's everything. Everything, that, what you do matters a ton, but it all flows out of where you stand in relationship to Jesus and the man or woman that you do not become as you follow, do or do not become as you follow him. Like who you become, that's the greatest thing that you get out of your life. And the beauty of that is you can grow and mature and become more like Jesus, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're a raging success or you feel like a dismal failure, whether all your dreams come true or none of your dreams come true, whether you live in wealthy upper-middle-class Melbourne or in a really broken part of the world, you can join and partner and follow Jesus and be a raging success at what really matters. And that is the man or the woman that you become as you follow Jesus right where you're at, no matter whether you love your job, hate your job, living your dream, not living your dream. You can be a raging success. You can become like Jesus. And the beauty of discipleship to Jesus, as you become more like Jesus, you also become more like your real true self. So you don't become like a drunk. Have you ever started to realize that? As people like are set free and made whole at a soul level, they become more like Jesus, but they also become more like them in a sense. You become more jesus here, and you become more you-er, like you here. I don't think that's a word. But you, be, you become more like Jesus of Nazareth, and you also become more like the man or the woman that God had in mind when he thought you up. So who are you becoming? What would it look like for you to partner with God, to move forward, to take the next step, to become like that? So here's what I want to do. Um, I have a bunch more I want to say. We, I think, have coffee and tea and all of that out there. I want to actually, I'm just going to pray, invite the Holy Spirit, and I want to just keep this room quiet for about 10 minutes. And if you want to just get right up and use the bathroom, go get coffee, chat to people, great. This is not like a who's more spiritual context, I promise. I'm not staying. I, I'm going out to get coffee. But if you want to take a moment 
and just spend a few times waiting, a few minutes waiting on God, and just take a second and ask that question with your journal open or just your mind and imagine it open to the voice of God, no guilt, no shame, and just ask that question in a safe place of the love of the Father over your life as a son, as a daughter. Who am I becoming? And even allow the Holy Spirit to lay out a vision of who or what you could grow and mature into. Great. And if you want to take 30 seconds or three minutes or, or no time at all, that's great. We're just going to keep this room quiet and then slip out and don't whisper anything. Go out, make as much noise as you want, talk to people, have coffee, do whatever Australians do, laugh a lot, whatever you do. Um, go do your thing. I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit and then we'll keep it quiet in here and either get up right away or when you're done, um, get up. And we'll, that way we'll see who really is spiritual. Um, we'll, we'll find out. Does, does that sound all right? So let me just pray. Holy Spirit, um, we just invite your presence, your power, your person. We ask that you'd settle over this room, over every man, every woman, um, even as we just take a minute or two, five, whatever, just a few minutes just to wait on you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would deposit um, right into the mind and the imagination of every man and woman here just a vision of who they are becoming. We pray against guilt and shame, against the enemy and his voice. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, We pray rather a freedom, a sense of healing, a sense of hope, and um, even excitement about the journey of discipleship, the journey to become more like Jesus and our root true self. Just, Spirit, we invite you just to speak into this time and this place.